Good morning. Uh, these meetings will both come to order. Welcome to the October 20th, uh, 2022 regular meeting of the Government Audit and Oversight Committee of San Francisco Board of Supervisors, as well as the October 20, 2022 special meeting uh, of the same committee, which was scheduled at 10.05 a.m. I'm Supervisor Dean Preston, Chair of the Committee, joined by Vice Chair Connie Chan and Supervisor Raphael Mandelman. The committee clerk today is Stephanie Cabrera, and uh, our thanks to the team at SFGov TV for staffing this meeting. Madam Clerk, do we have any announcements? Yes. The Board of Supervisors and its committees are now convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment, while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The Board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows. First, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, and then we'll take those who are waiting on the telephone line. For those watching either channel 26, 28, 78, or 99, and sfgovtv.org, the public comment call-in number is streaming across the screen. The number is 415-655-0001. Again, that is 415-655-0001. Then enter the meeting ID 2484-338 8697, then pound, and then pound again. Then, when connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak, and those on the telephone should dial star 3 to also be added to the speaker line. If you are on your telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices you may be using. As already indicated, we will take public comment from those attending in person first, then we will go to our public comment telephone line. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Government Audit and Oversight Clerk, at stephanie.c, as in California, a, b, as in bay, r, e, r, a, at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall, at 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, Room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. Finally, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors' agenda of November 1st, unless otherwise stated. And that concludes my announcements. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, please call items 1 and 2 from the regular agenda together. Item 1 is a hearing on the 2021 through 2022 Civil Grand Jury Report entitled, A Progress Report About the San Francisco Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. Item number 2 is a resolution responding to the presiding judge of the Superior Court on the findings and recommendations contained in the 2021 through 2022 Civil Grand Jury Report entitled, A Progress Report About the San Francisco Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing and urging the mayor to cause the implementation of accepted findings and recommendations through her department heads and through development of the annual budget. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001 and enter meeting ID 2484-338-8697, then pound, then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. The system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and you may begin your comments when we get to public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, 
today we'll be hearing the last of uh, this year's civil grand jury reports to come before the committee. Um, I want to really thank uh, my colleagues on this committee as well as uh, President Walton uh, for all the work um, on the various civil grand jury uh, reports um, and want to especially thank the members of the civil grand jury uh, for all of their work on these, these various and impressive and important reports. Um, everyone has really approached these, I think, with thoughtfulness um, and, and flexibility in terms of timing and scheduling as we move through the process. I also want to um, specifically recognize and thank uh, the folks from the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office, in particular Severin Campbell, uh, Ruben, uh, Ruben Hulliber, uh, and Nick Menard at the BLA, and also our City Attorney's Office, in particular Deputy City Attorney uh, Ann Pearson, who have been very, uh, I will say, patiently working with all of the supervisors on each of these reports um, and members of the committee uh, in ways that are not always visible to the public, but to make sure that our board responses um, are complete, but also comply with the very detailed parameters uh, for responding to, to civil grand jury reports that are laid out in state law. Um, for this report, uh, in, a, in a, um, a moment we'll be hearing um, from Will McCaw, the uh, president pro tem of the civil grand jury, and also Court Gross, uh, an author of the report that's before us today entitled A Progress Report about the San Francisco Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. After that, we'll hear uh, from Deputy Director of uh, HSH, uh, Emily Cohen, who'll be presenting um, on, on behalf of uh, the administration. Um, so I, I will not go into the report's details too much because we have the presenters who will be doing that and we've all had a chance to look uh, at the civil grand jury report. Um, but I will just say that, that it is, um, obviously the civil grand jury looked at an issue that really is top of mind uh, for many, if not most, if not all, San Franciscans. Um, homelessness remains a persistent issue in San Francisco thanks in no small part to failures at the, the federal and state level. Um, and uh, I think one thing we can all agree on is that nobody should be without a roof over their head uh, in San Francisco or anywhere, although we may often uh, disagree about the uh, exact approach to, to getting to that, uh, to, to changing that situation. The city still has a lot of work to do to address homelessness in a constructive and effective way. Uh, during this year's point in time count, as I know we'll hear uh, more about, the, uh, the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing found that an estimated 7,754 people were experiencing homelessness, and that's at the time of the pit count. So uh, our understanding is that the, the number is significantly higher if we're looking at the total number of people over the course of a year who experience homelessness uh, in San Francisco. Uh, the data shows ongoing racial and gender disparities in the number of unhoused and unsheltered people within our city and disparities also in the people who end up going through the coordinated entry uh, process in San Francisco. So we know that we still do not have enough permanent uh, or truly supportive housing to offer people who are homeless, uh, although I will say that I've been encouraged by um, seeing the progress that the city has been making specifically toward acquisitions uh, over the last couple years. 
Um, so I, I want to reiterate the thanks to the civil grand jurors for all of their work um, to shine light uh, on how we can continue improving our work and transparency uh, around this crucial issue and uh, would like to go ahead and call on our first uh, presenter um, or presenters from this uh, civil grand jury, uh, Mr. McCaw and uh, Mr. Gross, welcome. Through the chair, actually we have Spanish interpreters for items one and two, if we can make a quick announcement. Of course, please. For the items. And we have support from OSEA. Oh, Marty Dickinson, if you can please make the Spanish announcement for items one and two, please. Buenos días, me llamo Marty Dickinson y estaré prestando servicios de interpretación al español. Para dar su comentario público, marque el 415-655-0001, seguido por el código de acceso 2484-338-8620. Más la tecla de numeral dos veces. Luego presione el signo de asterisco. Antes de empezar a hablar, espere a que el sistema le diga que su línea ha sido activada o en inglés, you have been unmuted. Usted tendrá dos minutos para dar su comentario. Gracias. Thank you. Thank you, Madam okay. Clerk. Um, do we have another announcement? Yes, um, we just need to state the titles. Okay. Número uno será un hearing para escuchar el reporte de 2021 hasta 2022, el civil grand jury entitled A Progress Report about the San Francisco Department of Homelessness and Supported Housing. Número dos sería una resolución respondiendo al juez del Superior Court en lo que encontrar en las recomendaciones contadas en el 2021 hasta 2022, reporte del civil grand jury con el nombre A Progress Report and the San Francisco Department of Homelessness and Supporting Housing y preguntar al mayor que responde a implementación y aceptar las recomendaciones y los findings through sus departamentos. Gracias. Thank you, Madam Clerk. So uh, welcome, um, Mr. McCaw and, and, and Mr. Gross, and you have up to 10 minutes to, to present on this item. My name is William McCaw. I was the four-person pro tem of the 2021-22 San Francisco Civil Grand Jury. I want to take this opportunity to thank each of you for uh, taking the time today to listen to us and uh, give us the opportunity to talk about our report and answer any questions that you might have. Our jury was made up of 20 jurors and alternates who all care about San Francisco. In our discussions about what topics we wanted to look into, homelessness and the issue of homelessness, in San Francisco was top of mind for almost all of us. As you know, the civil grand jury is prohibited from investigating or offering up opinions upon uh, issues of policy. So we focused on the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing as an organization to see if we as outsiders could provide the department and the city and county of San Francisco with meaningful observations and recommendations for improvement within the limited scope of the jury's mandate. Uh, I'm happy that we're able to have this opportunity to discuss with you, and I want to take this opportunity now to introduce Court, uh, who is the chairperson of the commi investigation committee within our jury and the author of the report. Court.
Good morning. My name is Court Gross. Um, I, I will give a brief written statement and, and then um, speak from uh, some slides. Uh, my name is Court Gross. I served as chairperson of the 2021 SFCGJ committee that conducted an investigation and wrote the document entitled A Progress Report about the San Francisco Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. I'd like to introduce our report to you today, highlighting its main themes and commenting on responses from the mayor's office. A theme that arose in previous presentations to the GAO regarding three other reports written by the grand jury is communication. As a jury, we found in each of the topics on which we investigated and reported that the city could do a better job focusing on clear and transparent communication regarding the programs and policy, both to San Francisco city officials and to its citizens. That is certainly the case with our report, indeed central to our findings and recommendations. Although a plethora of information is available about city programs serving the unhoused, particularly online, it is not always well organized. Essential messages are often poorly delivered, even for an intensive review such as we conducted. Although answers to basic questions, such as how many shelter beds are there in San Francisco and how many of them are in use on a daily basis, can be found, it often takes a lot of looking. And even then, the answer may appear to conflict with information presented elsewhere. And this is to an engaged and relatively well-informed inquiry. To a casual observer dipping into uh, public websites and uh, information for the first time, the material presented, while impressive in its content, is nonetheless nearly inscrutable in its message. We conducted more than 25 interviews with a range of city staff, nonprofit staff, many of them contractors with the city, as well as advocates and policy experts. In general, we were impressed with both representations and judgments, constructive critique of the city's work on homelessness. The Department of HSH has plainly grown and has become focused and comprehensive since it was stood up only a few years ago. Yet, despite thousands of shelter-in-place hotel units coming online through the HomeKey program alone in recent years, widespread public perception is that the city is doing nothing about homelessness. We believe this poor public perception is largely the city's fault. We are grateful that the official city response to our findings and recommendations is mostly we are doing this already. Uh, we take that as an endorsement, as an acknowledgement of a shared understanding of work still to be done, but please understand our impatience if we don't see it yet. Going forward, we believe that the department should focus on better messaging and better oversight. Our report addressed the oversight issue by recommending a commission, which we are pleased to see that the Board of Supervisors are, has already picked up. Add to the response that staff are already working on the implementation of our, our other recommendations, we are simply left to say, okay, let's see. Um, at best, we could identify the intention and to a large extent the capacity to address our concerns, um, but we do not yet see the outcome. Self-reporting by the city on its progress addressing issues of homelessness remains mostly scattered and very occasional. We strongly believe that the city can do a better job of championing, of advocating for the impressive work it is already doing. We believe public perception of the issue can improve as a consequence. In the time I have remaining, I'll focus on specific recommendations we've made and responses provided, offering a bit of commentary on each. As I do that, I want to emphasize that our recommendations were bound by our understanding of our agency of a, as a civil grand jury, 
We could not make recommendations as to policy. Much as we like, might have liked to suggest budgetary reorientation, for instance, that was not within our understanding of our remit. Um, Stephanie, if you could then uh, put these up, I will, I, will, I will speak from these specific recommendations. So first slide is just the progress report. If you could do the next slide, please. And responses and rebuttals. Next slide, please. Um, first, the extensive use of PIT data by itself. This is finding number one. The extensive use of PIT data by itself is potentially misleading. Mr. Mr. Gross, sorry to interrupt you, but can if you, you can speak closer to the, the um, microphone so that uh, yeah, folks can hear you. to read all at the same time. Um, is that better? Much better. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, uh, the mayor's office disagreed partially. Um, actually, um, Supervisor Preston, you spoke to this just a moment ago. Um, it, the, the use of the PIT count is um, potentially misleading where we are, we are told it, it gets clarified, but it actually is more realistic to say that um, we have three times the number of um, uh, uh, unhoused people that show up in the PIT count in that one-time count. Um, and uh, overall, it can just be, um, we think, presented more comprehensively and um, without the focus on the PIT count that we hear. Um, next slide, please. Um, the uh, website can be more user-friendly. Um, the... Um, uh, the, the mayor's office responded, um, you know, with partial agreement. Um, there's been a lot of good work on this, but it's an ongoing process, and uh, we, we think that it can it the work needs to continue to um, make um, the, the site much more friendly in terms of getting to the information that is uh, is on people's minds, um, and in that to that extent. Uh, we think it's work that, that work that can continue. Next slide, please. Um, on the issue of neighborhood outreach, it's the same thing. Um, th there's been partial agreement on, on this and partial disagreement from the mayor's office. Um, uh, a lot of this work has been done already. We recognize that. And in fact, it's required to be, required to be done uh, by the federal government. Um, uh, but we think it still could be better, um, and we are pleased to see that a new staff position has been um, identified for this purpose um, uh, by, the, by the Department of HSH. Next slide, please. Um, this is addressed, as we mentioned, um, was actually not addressed um, in the initial response from the mayor's office. We, uh, we understand that uh, that has been picked up now, and uh, Emily will be speaking to that in a moment. Uh, but the short on this issue is that um, the Board of Supervisors has picked it up, so we will be looking forward to seeing uh, a vote on the matter of a commission um, coming up now in less than 20 days. Next slide, please. Um, the finding was that um, now more than half of the population of unhoused in San Francisco um, is um, older, is, is, um, is aging, and um, our concern was that there was insufficient attention paid to 
um, the aging um, uh, cohort of the homeless population in the city specifically. And um, uh, we were looking for more focus on that. We understand that there is more focus on the strategic plan that will be published in January. Um, and we are looking forward to seeing that. Next slide, please. Um, so in terms of recommendations, um, we just think that um, the city can do more work on um, establishing their, their data set and sharing that with us as the public. With us as the public. So we'll be looking for how that shows up in the strategic plan in January and are pleased for the direction it's taken. Next slide, please. Um, same thing from um, uh, data use. We are thinking that there can be continued focus on um, the, um, uh, the portal and navigation systems. Um, the, the public dashboarding project that uh, the, the department has put up um, we think has a lot of promise, but there still are some kinks to be working out there, and we will be, we, we will be quite mindful of uh, where that heads, goes forward. Uh, next slide, please. Recommendation three goes back to better neighborhood outreach. Um, we are quite pleased that a position has been uh, created for that purpose, um, and we will be looking uh, forward to uh, continued focus in that regard. Represent, uh, recommendation four, please. Next slide, please. Um, that was about creating commission. We wish everyone well with that process. We are um, hoping that uh, the vote goes in our favor in November. Next slide, please. Um, and the issue of age-specific um, data into, into the baseline data set, um, uh, we do understand that um, there has been some increased uh, focus on this, uh, actually quite recently, and uh, we are looking forward to see how that will turn out in terms of uh, city's policy generally. Next slide, please. And I think that's it. Um, so thank you very much. Appreciate your time, and um, we are happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Mr. Gross. I would like to invite up uh, uh, Deputy Director Emily Cohn from HSH for a presentation. Good morning, Supervisors. I'm Emily Cohen from the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. I want to start by thanking you for having us here today for this hearing and for the members of the Civil Grand Jury. We worked very closely together over many, many months, and it was a pleasure to do this work with them and really find a lot of value in the report that's been issued. And um, you'll, you'll hear in our presentation a lot of general agreement with many of the recommendations and a few points of clarification or uh, difference. I believe one of my colleagues is online to share some slides, but I will just go ahead and jump into it. Before responding directly to the recommendations and findings of the Civil Grand Jury Report, I do want to give some overall context for homelessness in our community. The 2022 point in time count as referenced by the Civil Grand Jury members found a 15% decrease in unsheltered homelessness between 2019 and 2022. This was the most significant decrease we've seen in this indicator in many, many years, and really an, speaks 
speaks highly to the amount of shelter and housing that had been added between the two years of the counts. Additionally, we saw an overall modest decrease in homelessness of 3.5%, which I believe is the tip of the iceberg in terms of improvement as we see Prop C and state dollars starting to hit the streets. And an overall an 11% decrease in chronic homelessness in our community. So these are, this is a decrease in homelessness among people who have experienced either multiple episodes of homelessness or long experiences of homelessness along with a disabling condition. So it's a specific definition from HUD and we've seen an 11% decrease by really focusing in on serving this population. Um, as was mentioned multiple times in our responses to the civil grand jury, we are in the middle of a strategic planning process at the department. You know, the department was formed in 2016 and we started with a five-year strategic framework that is now sunsetting. And we are in the process, we will be issuing our new strategic plan in January and really excited about the direction that it's going to be taking us. It will include robust data modeling uh, to, to really demonstrate what it is you know, we're trying to achieve, but we'll also be very data-driven, focused on proven strategies. The goal is for this to be a city strategic plan to address homelessness, not just an HSH plan. And the idea is to really align key city departments and stakeholders around a common vision. There will be a large focus on racial equity throughout the plan with key indicators and benchmarks called out. We know that homelessness is a racial justice issue and that ending homelessness for people of color is incredibly important to achieving our community's equity goals. Um, we are also designing a response. The response we're designing as part of the strategic plan is really centering the voice of people with lived experiences of homelessness. And we're working very closely with the community on developing this. And then not just focusing on what programs we need more of or how the programs can be better, but really focusing on developing and enhancing a coordinated systemic response to homelessness throughout our community. The key planning topics that we are focused on, as I mentioned before, are advancing racial and housing justice. And again, this is not just a one-off or different, you know, as part of the plan, every section of the plan will have racial equity goals. Um, a real focus on improving performance, capacity, and accountability within the system. And that's not just within HSH, but across our provider partners as well. Obviously, addressing unsheltered homelessness is top of mind for all San Franciscans. Enhancing and improving the temporary emergency services we offer, like shelter, to help ensure that people don't get stuck in programs, but are on a pathway through the crisis of homelessness. Um, increasing permanent supportive housing outcomes. That is, that means placing more people, developing or acquiring more housing, and also ensuring that people remain successfully and stably housed in that housing. And of course, preventing people from becoming homeless in the first place. This is one of the most challenging parts of the work that we do um, in terms of modeling outcomes and predicting success, but it is incredibly important to prevent homelessness whenever possible through flexible financial assistance, legal assistance, and other strategies. One part of the strategic planning process that I'm particularly excited about is the innovative community engagement approach that we've taken here. 
we are working with community liaisons who are hired and trained individuals with lived experience of homelessness who are participating in the design of the plan and conducting much of the engagement in partnership with the department, including surveys and focus groups, input sessions, and interviews with community leaders. So we're really taking, a, I think, a pretty bold approach to centering the voices of people with lived experience. And then also incorporating input from key community stakeholders that include our strategic framework advisory committee, the local homeless coordinating board, our city, our home oversight committee, the providers of color working group, and the other stakeholder groups that we engage with on a regular basis. So with that as context, I wanna to turn to the civil grand jury recommendations and we'll go through are the recommendations which you've already heard, so I won't spend much time on them, and then our response. So the accurate determination of the unhoused population was a theme throughout the, the report, and you know, as, as was stated in the previous presentation, the focus on point-in-time count data is limiting. And you know, we, HSH, uses the point-in-time count in the required ways from the federal government. We conduct it on a biannual basis. And the point in time count provides a really good year over year comparison because it's the same methodology. It also provides a good community to community comparison because most communities in the country, anyone who receives federal funding is required to conduct this count within the same 10 day period using a relatively similar methodology. So for what it is, it offers really helpful comparison data, but it is by no means the only data source we use when it comes to planning and program design. We use administrative data from our one or one system, um, which is the name of our homeless management information system, and we've used this to estimate an inflow rate into homelessness, which we also included in the, um, like the, the preface to our point in time count because we do think it's important to reference that the that while the pit count found 7,700 people experiencing homelessness on one night, we estimate the annual rate of homelessness to be closer to 20,000 people in our community and that for every one person we house through the homeless response system, we anticipate four more will become homeless in some fashion. And that we did include this year as our own sort of preamble to the point in time count because we agree with the recommendation that the pit count alone is not the only source of data on this and will not be the only data source used in the modeling that is part of our strategic plan. Um, accessibility of public data, this, this recommendation was near to my heart as I am spending a lot of time working on this right now, um, but we launched a report, data reporting, public reporting working group within our department and have created a data hub on our website. It, I agree, could still be more user-friendly, but now offers a single location on our website where the public can access several different data dashboards about our different programs. From these dashboards, we generate a monthly report that is currently presented to the local homeless coordinating board and reflects the same metrics of data on a month-by-month -month basis. As we revamp our strategic plan, we will update what those monthly reporting metrics are to align with the new goals and benchmarks in the plan, but the current reporting structure does align with our existing five-year strategic framework. 
the next slide uh, shows the, the public, just an example of one of the dashboards that really gets into our um, coordinated entry demographic data. This is available on our website, as is the dashboard that reflects our overwhelming success implementing the Mayor's Homeless Recovery Plan. Our permanent supportive housing vacancies, which is often a, top, a topic of conversation and concern. Shelter in place hotel dashboards are available on the website and coming next week. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Mandelman, for your, your push and leadership on this will be the shelter occupancy dashboard. Um, community engagement recommendation, another one that is directly under my purview, so take take these recommendations very seriously. Um, we agree that a more, more robust community engagement op, um, sort of team will be very helpful for implementing our work and you know, generating support among the public. Some neighborhoods and some neighbors don't see us until we're promote, you know, coming in with a proposed project in that community. We want to be out in the neighborhoods building relationships with housed neighbors, homeless neighbors, merchants, key stakeholders well in advance of ever coming forward with a project. And we have a very small community engagement team, but we are excited that we will be adding a position to it. Oversight uh, findings for A and B, the response is obviously that this is on the November ballot. Meeting the needs of older adults, this is another really critical recommendation coming out of the civil grand jury. As you all are aware, our relatively new executive director has come to us from DOS. Addressing older adult homelessness is her passion and something that is incredibly dear to her heart, and she has us all thinking in that direction. Um, I've been very impressed to see how this, this uh, the unique needs of older adults are becoming much more centered in our work. We have always had or have currently have over 800 units of supportive housing specifically dedicated to older adults and to people with disabilities. We are also, we have also recently launched a prevention partnership with DOS to work on ensuring that our homeless prevention resources are also reaching older adults, but we have much more work to do here and this will be a focus of our strategic planning process. We also have some new pilots in process, a partnership with IHSS and Home Safe to help ensure that the older adults in our permanent supportive housing are remaining safe and stably housed and can, can age in place given that the permanent supportive housing we have for them is is often maybe all that exists in the community. We know we need more beyond that, but we also need to enhance what we do have with the services needed for people to remain successful and age in place. Um, thank you very much, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. Um, and just be, while you're, you're up, uh, just a question on the, some of the things you referenced, and thank you. I think you answered a lot of the questions I had. Um, but you referenced an annual discussion around the pit count. We all understand pit count's a snapshot yep. in time, and you talked to the, the uh, importance but also limits of that. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the annual figure that you gave of around 20,000 people, yep. it, can, can you just break that down? Of, because with the pit count, we have very specific breakdown between yep. um, unsheltered and sheltered homeless, yes. uh, what, what is that 20,000 and how do you arrive at that? 
Definitely. This is an estimate, and it, it, we reach it by using our administrative data, looking at who touches the homeless response system throughout the course of a year, and then also looking at DPH data to see who within their system self-identifies as homeless within the year, and then pulling together those different data sources. So it does not specifically break down between sheltered or unsheltered. We don't have that level of data on the estimate, but we look at who has touched our system and the health system over the course of a year. And then do you track that year to year? So this is the first time we've published that number as part of the point in time count, so I believe we will start doing that going forward. Um, we've always, you know, HUD has some guidelines on an annualization recommendation, which I am not our data lead, but I think is about 3.2% annually. They recommend take your, your pit count, multiply it by 3, 3.2. That's probably what your system will see over the course of a year based on estimates of how long people experience homelessness. So that is like roughly what our data ended up showing. So we've always sort of operated with that estimate, and that is fairly similar to what DPH has estimated over the course of a year they'll see in terms of homeless folks accessing healthcare system. Thank you. Um, uh, on the dashboards, and maybe this is a question for uh, our uh, civil grand jury representatives, um, and Mr. Gross, I don't know if you want to take this, but um, I'm just, there was reference from Deputy Director Cohen around some improvements and updates to the data dashboards, and I just wanted to find out from your perspective, whether the, there's obviously been some time elapsed since the completion of the report and some of these changes, if, if you've had an opportunity to look at the new data dashboards, do they meet the recommendations? And if not, um, what additional information, uh, the, if you're in a position to, to address what additional information you would want to see in those dashboards to, to meet those recommendations? Uh, um. With regard to the dashboards, it should be clear uh, to some extent um, it's a qualitative judgment. Um, uh, but at the same time, we're talking about hard data. It, it's also, um, uh, uh, well, just it's obviously a quantitative judgment, what, what, what is being shown. Um, the, the, I, I have seen... Some, in, in recent months, as we were finishing up our report and getting done with our um, initial um, investigation, uh, yes, we did see, um, we thought, significant improvement and uh, good use of, of, of dashboarding. Um, at the same time, um, at that point, and, and I tried to make a note of this in uh, my comments at the beginning, um, the uh, at that point, we were feeling as engaged citizens that we had a decent idea of what was going on. Um, and the, the concern that we continue to have, and um, just to underline the help and focus and commitment that we've seen from city staff, it's been quite impressive. Um, uh, but uh, someone who is not engaged, who's just trying to figure out what's going on, I still think there's just a barrage of data that is coming, and um, there still can be more work done, and I hope that will be showing up as part of the strategic planning process to really skinny things down in terms of presentation. And uh, just to speak straight up, um, 
like on the pit count issue, um, we're not talking about 7,000 people. We're talking about 20,000 people. Um, just make that very clear up front that this is, um, uh, it, with those dashboards, um, uh, the, the bigger picture needs to be emphasized always and always being provided as context for the specific data that's being provided um, to help especially um, th those members of the public who are just trying to figure out what's going on. Um, uh, and, and it needs to be presented in such a way that um, uh, uh, a, a more occasional of re review um, not someone who's tracking the issue day by day, but someone who's saying, rather saying, hey, what's going on with this homeless thing anyway? And um, to be able to present it very, very tightly and um, uh, all in one place that someone doesn't need to engage in a research project to know what's going on with the issue. Thank you. Um, and then uh, Deputy Director Cohen, just a couple quick questions and I know my colleagues have questions as well. Um, one is, does the, uh, you describe some of the efforts around um, addressing particularly the, the needs and the data around seniors. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that was, you know, a significant point in the report. I'm curious just on the data presentation and dashboard, is that now tracked and available to the public around, we, it's over, what, over 50% of folks who are unhoused over the age of 50 and, and significant number 65 and over, uh, is, is that tracked and presented as part of the dashboards? Yeah, yes, age is always included in our demographic data that we include for each of the different, different dashboards that we present on like coordinated entry have a demographic dashboard that accompanies it and age is always a part of that, so Thank yes. You. Thank you. And then what is the, you referenced the inflow uh, rate. Can you d explain what that is? Yes, and probably a little bit better with my other notes, but the inflow rate is essentially the estimate that we make about the number of people who will become homeless in our community. And so this is either folks who are evicted and lose their housing, they get kicked out of an informal doubled up situation, a small percentage may move to San Francisco experiencing homelessness, and so we have looked at our administrative data about people who experience new episodes of homelessness, and we have found that for every, for every person that we house through the homeless response system, so that means moving into permanent supportive housing or rapid rehousing or one of our other subsidy programs, four new people touch our system. Um, and that, you know, we have invested, I think it's over $100 million over a two-year period in a new regional approach to homelessness prevention, or the investments are local but are participating in a regional approach to prevention, because if we cannot get a handle on the inflow of people becoming homeless in our community, we cannot house people fast enough to reduce our overall numbers um, in, a, in a meaningful way. Prevention is absolutely critical. I think the hard part about prevention is you don't know if it works. You don't know how much prevention is, it will take to result in one person not becoming homeless. It is often, I've heard, I've heard data, and we'll include this in our modeling that we're doing for the A Place for All legislation, that something like for 10, every 10 homeless prevention interventions, you may prevent one household from becoming homeless. Um, because you also, it's hard to prove that somebody would, would have become homeless. Um, so prevention is, is a hard one to sort of model for and wrap our head around, but we know 
that from an economic and humanitarian perspective, it's incredibly important to prevent homelessness, especially for older adults. Some new data that has recently come out is showing that older adults are experiencing homelessness for the first time over the age of 50. And for those folks, that experience of homelessness is really detrimental um, from a health perspective. So we wanna make sure that we are preventing through shallow subsidies, flexible financial assistance, and legal aid, preventing those instances of homelessness whenever possible. Thank you. Supervisor Mandelman. Uh, thank you, Chair uh, Preston. Um, can you repeat the older adult statistic you just gave? I, I think it was about it the, notes, the, the, percent, the percentage of folks who are becoming homeless for the first time over the age yes. of 50. So it's about 50% in California of people becoming homelessness or becoming homeless for the first time are over, or becoming homeless are over the age of 50. That's a and then, statistic. Yes, and San Francisco is similar. And we are also seeing that uh, Dr. Margot Cushell came out with some new data recently demonstrating that for folks who become homeless for the first time over the age of 50, that the health impacts are extreme, and in some cases, deadly, um, for older adults to experience homelessness, especially for the first time they have never dealt with life on the street before. Um, and it's really impactful. Um, it's a troubling Very. Uh, statistic. Um, I have questions both for you and for, and for the, the grand jury. Maybe um, uh, I guess for the grand jury, I mean, the, the, the premise um, that you started with was that uh, San Francisco is doing, uh, maybe I misunderstood this, San Francisco is doing a lot of great things on homelessness, has many successes, but people don't understand it, don't see it, and therefore hold, uh, and therefore believe that the city is failing around homelessness. And so it seems like there's a number of recommendations around more transparency, around understanding the scale of the problem. Um, but even if all of the recommendations uh, related to all of those things were implemented, it doesn't seem to me that that would address people's perception that we are failing on homelessness because there's an encampment on the sidewalk outside their home. Uh, well, that, that's both a statement and a question. It is, and you don't have, uh, I mean, the, you know, the, you, the, you, you um, can just let it sit there and, and I can say something else. But if you wanted to respond, I'd give you the opportunity. Uh, but, well, there's, there's, there's two things, um, and I think um, Deputy Director Cohen or Emily spoke to some of this. Um, without significant federal and state um, involvement, um, this issue will... Um, uh, not certainly not be solved and, and won't even be significantly addressed. So some, to some extent, the city's hands are tied. Um, and um, the, the, uh, then focusing against that public perception is, is, is very much a challenge. It's sort of, you know, it, it's, it's built in. It, it's an aspect of how it works. Um, uh, and yet, um, the there is a further public perception of you know th this department has a budget of over half a billion dollars um, uh, why is there an encampment in front of my house um, that's where I think um, 
uh, or, or not I think, we, we as a jury judged that, um, significant messaging can play a role in that and can play a role to the city's benefit, frankly. Um, uh, folks are working hard with commitment and expertise uh, to address the issue and yet, um, the complaint always comes up, what about this encampment in front of my house? Um, the, 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 the messaging, um, as, as we have seen in uh, all kinds of um, uh, public issues in recent years, can play a significant role in helping public understanding and public acceptance um, and appreciation of the work that is being done. And um, I, I, I know, given um, uh, uh, Emily's title, quite frankly, um, uh, and as she said in front of you right now, um, this is a matter that's very close, near and dear to her heart. Um, uh, but we are clear that, it, quite frankly, it, it, it can always be better. And um, uh, that there may come a time when um, that encampment will, will no longer be there. Um, but while it is there, I think the, the and as I say, I think, but we think as a jury, the more that um, the, the department can make clear what they are doing and just point up those numbers and point up the accomplishments, um, the, the more it will be to their benefit. I, I take the point and I think that they're, um, I think it's possible you're right. I think it's possible that... I'm sorry, I missed this, the word possibly what? It's possible that you're correct. And that this is actually a problem that San Francisco cannot solve and that we need to do a better job of explaining to the public why that is. You might be right about that. I also think it is interesting, and this is maybe outside the purview that the grand jury set for itself, that HSH has no role in addressing the aspects of homelessness that are most perceived as, or as a failure by the public. So the management of street homelessness, of unsheltered homelessness, is not really HSH's job. And the project that the grand jury in 2016 established, which was to, and that really Edley, it wasn't the grand jury that did this to us, but, but the, the project that we took on of setting up a department that would be the central agency department responding to issues of homelessness doesn't actually directly respond to the problem of homelessness as experienced by most housed San Franciscans. So all this progress on getting unhoused folks into homes, and HSH has, is doing remarkable work in that regard, and San Francisco before, before HSH was doing remarkable work in that regard, is unrelated, or is, is partly related, but not directly related, to whether the encampment outside your apartment lasts for four hours or four days or four months. Um, all right, that's not something you have to respond to unless you want well, to. Well, I, I, I'm just thinking, given your recent accomplishments, Supervisor Mandelman, um, you could say the same thing about having the ability to build four units on a single family lot. 
Um, the but I would never say that as a response to homelessness. Well, well, but but um, look at the word itself. Why are people homeless because they don't have a home? But it's not home. It's about house. Um, why are people, um, you know, why are people unhoused? Um, because they, they they can't afford to live in in the house that they've they, they have been living in. Um, the it's a broader issue of housing in general, um, and it's a broader issue of uh, of subsidy in general. Uh, one in four people who qualify for Section Eight are able to get access to it. Um, we had a significant f chunk of federal money in the Build Back Better plan for housing that ended up not showing up there. Um, uh, it, it's a matter of a, a national focus and uh, being able to do something about it. Um, in that context, um, HSH is doing their work. A further point, though, relative to what you were playing, um, or what, what you were saying, um, uh, looking at the focus of our report, uh, you know, we did not talk about DPH. We did not talk about HSOC. We did not talk about all the other stuff that is happening um, that um, HSH is not directly responsible for, although involved with at some level. Um, the, uh, they're still um, having a central department um, stood up as, you know, as Mayor Lee did it in 2016, um, has certainly made a difference and has certainly helped in terms of coordinating things. Um, but, um, uh, and actually, why do you say that? Why do I say that? Do you think we're in a better position today in addressing these challenges than we would have been if we had proceeded Yes. Through HSA and, and DPH. And yes. Why, and why is that? Um, well, um, look at the city of Houston as an example um, that has had quite a, of, quite a lot of success lately in terms of dealing with homelessness. They've done it using a model very similar to ours, although um, even more streamlined. Um, they have a central coordinating program, and everyone goes through that program. Um, the... Um, the city of San Francisco, as I say, does it similarly, although with a few more bells and whistles, and um, it is not entirely centralized. Um, you know, DPH in some ways still kind of runs on their own. Um, uh, you know, although um, Sam Dodge is, has been part of the picture with HSH from the beginning, um, HSOC still, you know, kind of runs on its own. Um, uh, the... So there still are aspects of where the, the centrality of HSH, I think, could be even more so. Uh, I'll be looking at that question as well. We, we as the public will be looking at that question as well when the strategic plan comes out. Um, uh, but, um, uh, and like I say, it, it's, it's, it's certainly better than it was six, eight years ago. Um, but it still is a ways to go. Okay. All right. I think the rest of my questions are for Ms. Cohen. Um, um, I want to talk a little bit about this pit count versus other ways of thinking about homelessness in San Francisco because the pit count has the advantage, as you have said, of everybody's doing it the same way. It's very clear how you're doing it. You have, you're actually counting bodies. You get a number. And then over time, you can see where there are more bodies or fewer bodies on that particular night at that roughly same time of the year, 
should be giving you an indicator of whether you're going up and down over time and should be an indicator of how you're doing relative to these other jurisdictions. Great, advance, great value in that. I think the principal problem with, well, a, the problem as I understand it and have thought about it is it doesn't give you a picture of homelessness over the, over the year or over, you know, over time. And we come to conclusions about our homeless population based on the makeup over that night or day, which may not be accurate over, over a year. But I don't know that you have any other similarly, I mean, the notion was, tightening up on a better estimate of what the, but the better estimates are like math project, right? It's like sort of, it's based on like, well, we think it would be this. And if we multiply this out by that, that's not tighter, that's looser and more um, sort of of an estimate, which is useful to us in thinking about, oh no, it's not really an 8,000 person problem. It's a 20,000 person problem, but it's a guess. It's, a, it's, a, it's an informed math based Yes, or am I not understanding? No, nope, you're yes, correct. Okay. So then, any questions? Any we we have a trouble driving conclusions about the twenty thousand as opposed to the eight thousand. But it has always been my impression, and I'm curious if you think this is right or wrong, that that the twenty thousand is a more mobile group, is less likely San Franciscan. I'm curious if that's wrong, because you also said that you think that the inflow is a small percentage. So I'm curious about why you think the, in, the, the folks who are becoming homeless over the course of the year and may not be in San Francisco homeless over a long period of time, um, why you think that that is a small percentage and um, that the, I'm sorry, that the, that the inflow is a small percentage and, and why you wouldn't think, I mean, the people who are here in January of, of 2019 and again in January of 2022, it seems to me are quite possibly became homeless. You know, this is their, this is home. They're here for the duration. Mm -hmm. That folks who are, who are more mobile, moving from place to place, that that's what that, the, that's what the delta, that's what I've imagined the delta between 8,000 and 20,000. But do you think the delta is housed San Franciscan, becomes unhoused, but finds, finds a home and that's more of that 12,000? Or do we have any way of even, I, do we have any, any notion of what the 12,000 is? I, I don't know that we have a notion of it currently. I, I think that we may be able to get there. You know, an easier way to, or another way to think about this might be the inflow of, right, for every one person we house, four become homeless. And I would anticipate that of those four, three were San Franciscans and one came from another community because we have consistently asked the question in our point in time count survey of where were, where were you most recently housed? And that is our best way of getting at where is home for you? And it has varied between 69 and 70% answer that San Francisco is their long-term home. And so if we say 70%, 75% of people who become homeless are San Franciscans, this is a very self-referential way of getting yourself to the conclusion about, right? Because the point in time count in that, on that day, mm -hmm. <clears throat> we know that 70% uh, are reporting back that they were last housed in San Francisco. Yep. But we, but we don't re 
I think that the way you just described that led you in a circle back to the same conclusion. I think. I could be wrong. <laughs> no, you might be right. Um, there's another potential narrative, which is that lots of people in California are unhoused. Lots of people on the West Coast are unhoused. That folks are unhoused in San Francisco and then unhoused in Oakland and then unhoused in San Jose and then unhoused in San Francisco again. And that there's more of that in the 12,000 than in the 8,000. And then you get a slightly different conclusion about you know, what, your, what your homeless challenges on the streets are. I think that is certainly possible. I don't think we have the data to say yes One or no definitively. Or um, okay, so then can we talk about for every person, I'm also trying to understand the math of for every person we move to a, we, we move into a permanent home, four more become unhoused. But we don't have, but homelessness is decreasing. So how does the math on that work? Well, be, I think because, and I'm definitely happy to bring our data expert in to meet with you to have a, a longer conversation about this, um, because we have the, the incredible inf increase in shelter and housing available between 2019 and 2022, we saw this number start to, start to tip. But if we just project out, if we continue to do what we're doing, we're going to see this number remain stable and grow slightly without adding more capacity. I would love to better understand both of these. I will bring all, our all data expert in. We will set up a meeting, and she can explain it far better than I can. Who's on your strategic plan advisory group? Strategic plan advisory committee is committee. made up of, I believe it's 10 to 12 nonprofit service providers and advocates in the community, as well as HSH staff. So you know my great critique of the way we think about the work of your department is that we do it almost entirely with people who either have themselves have lived experience of homelessness or have provided services to folks uh, who have, have had who have been unhoused and although that is useful um, and necessary actually that it's almost exclusively like if you go through the bodies the, the plethora of bodies that oversee some aspect of homelessness in San Francisco and this is going to continue with the new commission even though the new commission will have one seat for neighborhoods and small business to fight over. Um, but this is a conversation with people who all agree with each other um, about, right? And the people who apparently the grand jury was concerned um, think that we're failing, even though maybe by many measures we're not, are not part of those conversations. And they're the people who, I mean, we were, to a greater or lesser extent, like, Everybody up here is supposed to represent, at least to an extent, the people who are not on these bodies. We, we, are, we will be holding a general like town hall for folks to give general constituents, um, not necessarily stakeholders or folks working in the system, um, for them to give, have an opportunity to give input into the strategic planning process. But you're absolutely right. We have been very focused on centering the voices of right. people with lived experience. But, but exclu exclusively. Like, we don't talk to the other people. Or we do if they come and they scream, which they do. But, okay. I mean, that, I think that's a problem. Um, and I think, I think that's probably it for now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Mandelman. And before I turn it over to Vice Chair Chan for some questions, um, I just wanted to follow up on a couple of points from this discussion. So... First is this issue of the pit count. 
snapshot in time, the estimate of about 70% of folks were formerly housed in San Francisco um, reflected in those numbers. And, and what I was hearing is a lot of speculation around the other folks who touched the system in some respects and are, are counted in, in a broader estimate of how many people are homeless throughout the year and how, what percent of those folks may or may not be formerly housed from San Francisco, which I think is a very, I will say, a very politicized issue. There are a lot of claims made, frankly, by people who have no data whatsoever uh, speculating as to the balance of folks and, and the extent to which they do or don't uh, come from San Francisco. My concern, I mean, what I heard was an answer that we have no reason to, us, to believe that that balance, those additional folks might not have a higher percentage of being folks from outside San Francisco. Maybe, maybe I'd like to turn it around because I, I think we have, we have an actual data point, which is we take a snapshot at a per point in time over 10 days and we count who is homeless and we ask them these questions. That's the data that we have, right? We actually don't have, that I'm aware of, any reason to believe that if we took that same snapshot five months later or four months later or eight months later or cumulatively over a year that it would be any different, right? I mean, like the best data says 70% of people who are, who are homeless, whether sheltered or unsheltered at the time of the pit count, formerly housed in San Francisco, and so the best data would suggest, unless someone has a theory about why it would be different, that that would be the case for others who touch the system. Or am I missing something? No, you're correct in terms of, you know, this is the, the time that we ask this question in the survey that accompanies the point in time count. And we have, like I said before, have seen this number stay right around 70% for many years that say San Francisco was where they were living when they were last stably housed. Other big cities, asks the same question, they see about 75, maybe 80%. So slightly higher than us, although I wouldn't say that we are like a huge outlier there. We, we do ask, we do not ask this question in that same way when we're doing assessments for housing, although we do ask some information. So we, it's possible that we, through our assessments of folks as we're moving them through the homeless response system that we could get to a better, a more nuanced understanding of this. But frankly, if, if you're here and asking for help, it's our responsibility to help you. Where you slept six months ago is important in having those conversations about where your family is, where your social safety net is, how we might be able to help you stabilize. And you know, we're, we're gonna work with folks, whether they've been here a few days, Thank you, okay. and, and, and I'll be clear, I, I don't ask these to push back in any way on that understand. suggestion and mm -hmm. appreciate that perspective. I do think there's a political reality, which is by uh, painting the homeless population increasingly based on no data whatsoever, based on pure speculation as not residing in San Francisco before they become homeless, it, it, it at least with respect to folks who hold jobs like I do, where I'm elected by people, suggest that the people who are living on the streets of San Francisco are somehow, were not our constituents and somehow came here uh, for, some, for some reason. I agree with you, once folks are here, the obligations we have you know, to, to make sure folks are, aren't living on the streets 
uh, it shouldn't be a, a litmus test in that way. But I just want to be clear because this is this gets kicked around as such a political football so often with a lot of speculation, and yet the data is quite consistent. Every pit count, these questions are asked, and it looks like at least 70% of folks, you know, who are who are uh, living on the street or are, unshelter are sheltered homeless. Uh, were formerly housed in San Francisco, and that hasn't changed dramatically. Um, I, I also just, and, and maybe it's, it's related, but I, I just do want to add my voice to uh, something that I wasn't clear on before I took office two and a half years ago and was explained to me by HSH leadership at that time and that I think is very important. The job of HSH is not, while it may be my job and Supervisor Mandelman's and, and Vice Chair Chan's, to respond equally to the needs of housed neighbors and constituents and community. Um, the job of HSH is different, right? The job of HSH is to center people who are experiencing homelessness and get them housed. Now there's an indirect benefit to an entire neighborhood for reasons that are you know, extensive that folks are housed and not living on the street and people who who have housing in the neighborhood certainly share an interest in making sure that everyone is housed. But I, I guess I just, and this is not a question, but more of a statement, because I think it's important that, that as a legislative body that we continue to support that focus of HSH. And while there are other departments that may have more of a focus on other issues that arise, um, as a result of people living on the streets. When it comes to HSH, I believe it's entirely appropriate that the advisory bodies, that the people you are consulting with, and that the mission of the department continues to center those who are unhoused and their needs and doing what we need to support the needs of unhoused folks and, and getting them housed. So I, I just wanted to, to, to say that and, and uh, and, and emphasize that I have appreciated since taking office the clarity uh, while I have you know, shared plenty of critiques and disagreements with the department, uh, it has never been around that. And I, and I think that that's, that, that's um, extremely important that that focus um, continue. Um, Vice Chair Chan. Thank you, Chair Preston. I want to first thank the uh, civil grand jury for your hard work on this. I so appreciate um, the recommendations. So I want to build on that, and because I, 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 I share the frustration overall that you know, as San Francisco residents, and we're trying to uh, want to um, contribute and problem solve this, but this seems so like overwhelming, and it's kind of confusing. Like, what are the efforts really being put forward? Are we deliver delivering the results that? that we say we are, and it doesn't seem like there's a dashboard or data that actually matching somehow what we're doing to the, the results being delivered. So it becomes a very overwhelming. So having a 20,000 uh, people as, or, or anywhere between 7,000 to 20,000 people at any time, and as a point in time count, is, is just overwhelming as if are we actually making differences. I think then that goes back to like, who are we serving the population here and before, or how long they've been in San Francisco and, and at which time period. So that this goes to the data. I, 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 and here's my, I wanna add to the civil grand jury report and, and just thinking about the dashboard, because I, 
I think this conversation is like, what, what do we want to see? And I think that thank you so much for your team's briefing too early on, and I really appreciate the effort and the timeline. Um, I think that it's been amazing since um, Director Ms. Baden been on that I do see while however way that San Francisco may not have seen immediate results because we want to solve this problem like yesterday, but I, I do see that there are that's been strategic progress being made both on like a big vision and but also you know whatever we can do on the ground including uh, placing folks like for home placements progress so I would love to see though in the data like dashboard and and it is sort of just uh, I, I, I think the civil grand jury sort of identify the adult uh, age 50 and over I think that that is actually a great space to be in terms of for data framing, allow us to understand population, like including sort of this like 50 and older and then, but just help us understand because I, I think that there's also has been an issue with foster youth, you know, graduating from the program and they, you know, anywhere between the 18 and 24 um, young adults being homeless in San Francisco is also very real. And so it would be great to see the dashboard breaking down in that as well. Um, and with the connection though, to not just about like if they're being homeless and how many, but there will be a linkage to say two things I would love to see is that the programs that they are actually either available to them or that they've been connected to. Uh, for these populations, so that we know that which program is actually serving these populations. And with that, because my role on the budget committee, perhaps not so much on the dashboard, because I understand that there's variables and it's hard to report, but I think through, through the budget process, matching that dashboard by population and the programs like provided or, or served to a budget that we understand the budget spends for 50 and older, 18 to 24, programs that it's actually uh, serve in what category, and then when it comes to the budget committee and the budget process, that is actually also linked back to the budget so we understand the dollar spends. Obviously, if even possible to break down into dollar spends on each population and, and group, and, and, and on housing or food security or workforce development, like, you know, so I think that we can start to see, because I wanted to res, I, I actually understand as a supervisor and I, I share the sentiments with Chair Preston about sort of like folks are saying certain and, and giving certain narratives and optics out there uh, are not really matching the data there and, and there's not, there seems to be a disconnect, meaning folks was really overwhelmed, right? I have constituents constantly saying to me, the city and county of San Francisco, you know, you're spending $1 billion, you know, and, and, and where's the results? And, and I think that that is part of the perception. We're spending, we're investing a lot of money, which I think that, and, but and yet we're done, not delivering results. So hopefully the data dashboard allow us to have just some frame of reference that is shared in a consistent that we can all just point to that dashboard and say, okay, this is the population served, program connected, served or not served, and then we have a dollar amount to really match it for even the supervisor to be informed. That's my feedback. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that feedback, and I, I definitely take that recommendation around tying the budget to the outcomes. You know, 
we saw a 15% reduction in unsheltered homelessness. And on our dashboard that talks about this, it does tie directly to the fact that we had a 24% increase in available shelter beds during that period of time. The reason we have fewer people sleeping outside is directly tied, and it, I don't have the dollar amount on there, so I could definitely take that recommendation, but it's because we increased the investments through Prop C, through state money, through local general fund, to the shelter availability. One other thing I want to bring up is related to what you just said and very much related to some of the conversations I've had with the civil grand jury is around public perception of the crisis of homelessness. And that is, that is very real because it drives the politics and it drives the public discourse and the faith that the community has in the public sector to solve one of our most important economic and moral issues that our community faces. And I think there's a lot of things happening on the street. Even though there's a 15% reduction in unsheltered homelessness, if the person in front of your house is in crisis of some sort, having a mental health crisis, is just inadequately sheltered, it doesn't matter that you don't see the 2,000, over 2,000 people we housed last year. You're gonna see the person in front of you. And that is our, human, our humanity playing out and it should feel urgent and it should feel necessary. My concern around the public perception is that given the increased acuity and vulnerability of people on the street and frankly the chaos of the streets generally related to homelessness and unrelated to homelessness, that these issues all get tied together and you, the public does not see the thousands of people we've housed who walk by them on their way to work or their doctor's office or wherever they're going that day just like they don't see me walk into the office. It just is. But what you see is the folks we haven't been able to help yet. And that is what is shaping the narrative. And I think why it's so important that we get out the positive messaging around the work that not the department, you know, we're funding and supporting and guiding this work, but it's the work that our nonprofit partners are doing to change lives every single day. And those once you're housed, it's like, okay, you know, we're not going to worry about that person anymore, but, which in our case isn't true at all. We spend a lot of our time and energy uh, working with the people who've been recently housed, but it's out of the public mind. And that is, I think, where we struggle to change that perception that you were talking about. And then I think that's like, thank you. And then I think that leads to another point I would love to see, or and, and, and another element that I would love to see at the dashboard is then out of which, you know, to the, have that breaking down of broken down to different populations and category is to have a better understanding um, permanently housed and what does that mean and look like and and I think like you know I, I think that there is permanently housed is it's an interesting term that I'm still trying to understand how it translates into real life like because I think through the sit the, the you know shelter in place hotel program and through the process I think what I have learned and, and looking at is someone may be sheltered at one point, but for a variety of reasons, we, we experienced empty rooms issues even during the pandemic, even though we have provided the shelters, and for a variety of reasons. So, so I think that's another key. How do we say? How do we articulate that data point that we have placed six thousand people was our goal for June of this year? and to place them in homes, and, and out of which 
how many stay in one year's time, two years' time, three years' time, and, and in projection? And so we have a 97% year-over-year retention rate in our permanent supportive housing, and that's coming out of our COC, those are HUD-required data point, and we assume that it projects across our entire system. And then, and that's about the national average with permanent supportive housing, 95 to 97% retention from year one to year two. From year one to, so after two years, we see that rate drop to about 87%. Nationally, it's about 80%. So we're doing better than the national average when it comes to housing retention after two years. But that is data that we track. And I think that will be meaningful data to be to include on a dashboard so that San Franciscan can see and ourselves include and say, okay, in this year we have made this effort and out of which 97% uh, of that 6,000 were successful. I, I think that is how we, at least for me, can put together of understanding success, and I know it's incremental, but, mm -hmm. but that's, at least we, we track the progress. Yeah. And, and to kind of understand out of all those populations, you know, 50 and older, and, and how, how uh, which then we can understand, uh, have we been successful? And, and, and it, are we equitable, you know, in, in terms of placing homes? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you. So for answering my questions, and thank you, Chair Preston. Thank you, Vice Chair Chan. Let's go ahead and uh, open up the, the items to public comment. If I could just make one quick comment to uh, follow up on what Emily was saying. Let, let, can, can you hold the thought? Let, let's yeah. go ahead and open, open up for public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for items number one and two? Please line up to your right. Remote public call-in members, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you've been unmuted. Seeing no one in the chamber, we'll move to our remote call-in line. We have two callers on the line with one in the queue. Can you please forward the caller, Jaime? Good morning, this is uh, Jordan Davis, she and her, I've been live tweeting this. Anyway, I wanted to uh, mention a couple things that came up. One, I really think that 70%, while well, 70% of people have, uh, who came here were actually uh, homeless, were actually living in San Francisco before being homeless, 30% of those who came here, including myself, belong to the Probably a lot of them belong to the LGBTQ community. Some of them are immigrants, so they probably had good reason to come here, and we shouldn't stigmatize that. I also wanted to mention the uh, permanent support of housing retention rate, and maybe it's not as high because there's been a big eviction crisis, according to the Chronicle. I also really wanted to touch into another major factor is that a lot of this uh, Civil grand jury report doesn't have anything to do with the issues surrounding permanent support housing. What we're seeing, what we saw in the uh, Chronicle, two Chronicle exercises about the conditions. There really needs to be a good look at how we do permanent support housing, the process, uh, the, uh, the tenants' rights in support of housing, and about the conditions and how people can uh, assert their rights in a way that's not the uh, SRO collaboratives. And I wanted to thank you for, uh, and I really think that should have uh, been covered. And I also uh, would like to conclude by saying that I, it's really kind of offensive to really, and illegal as well, to re mention any pending ballot measures, and I'll leave it at that. I yield my time. 
Thank you for your comments, Ms. Davis. We have one more caller. Please forward the caller. Yes, uh, I've been a resident of District 8 for 27 years, and I'm really upset about this today's hearing because it highlights something that me and my neighbors absolutely see every day. We're talking about taking the, the homeless population as a whole and talking about that when the neighbors are not upset about the homeless population, they're upset about the voluntary homeless. In our neighborhood, there are tons of encampments that Mandelman, uh, Supervisor Mandelman referenced. Those are the people who, in spite of being offered shelter, refuse it. Some of them have shelter and are still uh, still in, in uh, regard to the laws violating the law. San Francisco, as well as the state of California, has laws which prohibits camping on the street. But not only that, camping on the street is not safe. It's not where they belong. And I really, really am upset with the homeless coalition claiming that we're trying to shame the people. We're trying to give the people help. And that's what we need in District 8. We need people who can help the people get off the street, but not through housing, but through treatment, because it's been demonstrated over and over again that the 25 or so people in our neighborhood are causing 100% of the problems. I am for permanent housing for all, no question about it. But, the, but we have the voluntary homeless that is the pain in the neck and it's, it's ruining our community. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. You may please forward the next caller. Hello, a am I on? Yes. Yes, okay. Hello, my name is Rick Crane. I've actually been a resident of San Francisco for 40 years. I also am actually a member of the investigative and uh, committee that prepared this report due to personal health issues I am not able to attend. I, I wanted to make two comments if I could. One is to actually clarify the issue of the aging of the um, older population among the home unhoused. Um, I think it's more dire than just saying that the average age of, of a homeless person is 50. What's even more distressing is based on the last PIT and the work that the department DOS has done in, and human service agency in terms of their needs assessments that they do, every two years, it's actually the 65 and older. It's the most, it's the oldest of those that we are seeing who are experiencing the greatest increase in homelessness. Um, we see that actually the 65 and over group is the fastest growing cohort among homeless in general. And even more importantly, what we're seeing is that the fastest growing subpopulation of who are experiencing homelessness for the first time are those 65 and older. So that definitely has implications, which the department, Director McSpadden and Deputy Director Cohen have alluded to, which is that we're, we're finally recognizing that this is a problem. Also acknowledging that the prior HSH administration was following federal guidelines, which never did address the issues of the elder adult as a, as a specific or important population nationwide. So in some ways, I think the department is doing a really admirable job of playing catch up. The other issue 
that I'd just like to raise is this whole issue, which was about at the very onset, um, Mr. Gross's comments talked about that the work of the grand jury dealt with communication for the interruption. issues. Your time has lapsed. Thank yes. you for your comments. And there are no other callers in the queue. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, public comment on these items is now closed. Uh, Mr. Gross, I believe you had an additional thought you wanted to share with the committee. Yeah, thank you. The um, uh, just going to say that in the context of public perception, uh, we've been shown culturally in many ways in recent years that um, just saying the same thing again and again and again um, has an impact, and it can influence public perception. For instance, um, the matter of crime. Numbers show that crime is decrease, decreasing in many cases, and yet, you know, homicides are down. Um, uh, here in San Francisco, though, there's a few public break-ins, and there's this public perception of crime is going crazy. Um, it happens elsewhere in the country. Similarly with homelessness, to go back to Supervisor Mandelman's comment on um, the encampment outdoors, we just feel strongly that um, the more that HSH can tell us what they are doing, uh, can point to the successes of MoCD, can point to the successes of others, um, just as, as um, Emily said, um, uh, 2,000 units, that's something. Um, when it costs a million bucks to build a unit of affordable housing in the city, um, uh, recognizing the, the enormity of uh, that type of accomplishment, that's the kind of thing that um, could, I think, really help with public perception in, generally, in general and also could very much redound to um, uh, public perception of what HSH is doing and uh, really point up the good work that uh, they've been able to accomplish in recent years. Thank you very much, uh, and thank you again for all of your your work. And and I, um, some of those points certainly uh, do resonate. I I do appreciate the civil grand jury reports focus on some of the communications and data and how this is presented. Side, I actually think it's something that often um, gets lost. I think there is a revisionist history that is occurring that looks at. It basically says none of these interventions work and therefore we shouldn't do them instead of uh, a view I hold, which is the only reason we are seeing a drop in the number uh, in the pit count is because we finally, during a pandemic, had a level of federal and state investment and so city cooperation and implementation in acquiring large numbers of hotels and places for people to stay and we see that in the data so you know my personal view is the lesson of that is do more of that not less of that but I think it is important that we recognize that there there is a communications a narrative a propaganda sort of war there are a lot of folks that want to declare those kind of interventions as a failure uh, and do less of that going forward so so I think it's a very timely report I appreciate the recommendations uh, and and I also will say this is one of the the few grand jury reports we've had where for the most part the department has been um, embracing or already done uh, many of the things noted uh, in the report so um, 
I do want to go ahead and propose the, the board's uh, responses to the uh, grand jury's findings uh, and recommendations. There's a limited number of, uh, of these uh, that we were directed uh, to respond to, so I want to make a motion. Uh, we'll be making a motion to amend the resolutions to include uh, the following proposed responses that I circulated to uh, the committee earlier. Um, for the resolved clause currently starting at page three, line one, would like to amend that the language read, quote, resolved that the Board of Supervisors reports to the presiding judge of the Superior Court that they agree with finding number F4A for the reason as follows, the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, HSH, uh, does not currently have an oversight commission or body that oversees HSH's entire portfolio close quote, uh, for the further resolve clause, uh, currently starting at page three, line four, to amend that language to read, quote, further resolve that the Board of Supervisors reports to the presiding judge of the San Francisco of the Superior Court uh, that they partially, that they disagree partially with finding number F4B for the reason that follows, while there are multiple advisory groups empowered only to review, recommend, and comment on certain matters concerning HSH, which could arguably be coordinated in a more efficient way. The advisory bodies have done important work, which has informed and sometimes guided HSH's work, close quote. And for the further resolve clause starting on page three, line seven, to amend that language to read, quote, further resolved that the Board of Supervisors reports that recommendation number uh, R4 has already been implemented as the Board of Supervisors considered and unanimously voted on July 19, 2022 to place the issue on the November 2022 ballot. Um, any discussion of the proposed amendments? Uh, Supervisor Mandelman. Uh, thank you, Chair Preston, and thanks to you and your office for your work on this resolution. I guess I, um, I partially disagree with, uh, with one of the uh, conclusions. I, I, I believe that F4B, the statement that the current configuration of multiple uncoordinated advisory groups empowered only to review, recommend, um, uh, and uh, actually that's blocked off in my graph, but is inefficient and ineffective um, is correct. And so I probably would just say agree but that is not a reason to vote against the resolution. I just, um, you know, think I, I tend to think that the grand jury was correct on that point. But um, noting that for the record. Thank you, Supervisor Miniman. Any further uh, comments on the amendment? Seeing none, uh, I'll move to uh, amend the resolution uh, with the responses we've discussed on the record. Madam Clerk, please call the roll on the amendments. On the motion to amend the resolution. Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Um, and uh, I'd like to make a motion to send the uh, resolution. And, and, and I should say before we do this, just really do want to re reiterate the thanks to the civil grand jury. Thank you for, for all of your work and for the presentation um, and, and to uh, HSH as well. Um, but I want to go ahead and make a motion to send this resolution, which is regular agenda item two, uh, as amended to the full board with positive recommendation. On the motion to send the resolution as amended to the full board, Vice Chair Chan. 
Chan, aye. Member Mandelman? Aye. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes, and uh, I'd now like to make a motion to file regular uh, agenda item one. Thank you. I'm the motion to file regular agenda item number one. Vice Chair Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman? Aye. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes as well. Um, Madam Clerk, let's call um, special agenda item one. This will repeat in Spanish. Esto se repetirá en español. Item number one is a hearing for the budget and legislative analyst to provide an updated report on residential vacancies in San Francisco based on recently released data from the American Community Service Survey and requesting the BLA to report type in the long report. Member of the public who would wish to provide public comment on this item, please dial 415-655-0001 and enter meeting ID 2484-338-8697, then pound and then pound again. If you have not already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. The system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. So we go to public comment. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, Pardon me, Chair. There, there's a Spanish translation for this. Thank you, go ahead. El artículo número uno es una audiencia del análisis legislativo del presupuesto BLA para proveer un reporte de residencias vacantes en San Francisco, basado en la información obtenida por American Community Survey, ACS. Miembros del público que deseen dar su comentario público acerca de ese artículo pueden llamar al 415-655-0001 y entrar al número 2484-338-338. 8697, seguido por el signo de asterisco dos veces, luego el número 3 para ponerse en turno. El sistema indicará que usted ha levantado la mano y por favor espere a escuchar en las palabras you have been unmuted para dar su comentario público. Gracias. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. So uh, colleagues, today we'll be discussing um, an updated report from the budget and legislative analysts on residential vacancies in San Francisco. Um, and you will recall that earlier this year, the BLA published uh, a report on vacant homes based on the latest available data from the American Community Survey, um, which, was, which dated back to 2019 before the pandemic. Uh, the ACS uh, recently released updated figures from uh, capturing 2021 period, and that's what forms the basis for the uh, BLA update uh, that, that we will be uh, hearing today. Um, I won't get, I, I will let the BLA get into the details, but, but I will say that it's really, um, it's really a staggering report in terms of what the increase has been. Since 2019, the number of vacant homes has really skyrocketed from, at that time, approximately 40,000 to now more than 60,000 uh, units in San Francisco. That's a 52% increase in just two years. Um, at this point, 
based on that most recent data, we are looking at nearly 15% of all homes in, in San Francisco uh, are, are empty. Uh, there are obviously different reasons for those vacancies, but uh, that's, that's a big chunk of our housing stock. Uh, and also, interestingly, by, by far the highest rate among major cities uh, in the country. Um, in addition to having the highest overall residential vacancy rate of comparable, uh, comparably sized U.S. cities, San Francisco also has um, the highest share of units that are vacant for seasonal, recreational, or occasional use, more than 10,000 homes. Um, and that's a category that inclu includes vacation homes and, and uh, pied-de-terres. Um, the units that are for rent but remain vacant have seen a huge increase, a 142% increase in just two years. That's the single highest increase among uh, any category of vacancy. So I know the BLA will present on this, answer, answer questions uh, that the committee may have, but I, I do want to just, in terms of setting the stage here, just say that this, this data really, from my perspective, paints a, a pretty stark picture, and in a city where the cost of housing is out of reach for, for most working people, um, and as we just heard in the last agenda items, being reminded again of the data around thousands of of people being without housing and, and homeless in San Francisco living on our on the streets. Um, I think it's more than just a data issue. It's a, a, a really immoral and inhumane to have tens of thousands of homes sitting empty while people are living on the streets. Um, the, I think the dramatic increase in two years um, shows really the dire need for policy intervention to do whatever we can to turn these empty units into places where people can live. Um, so I want to welcome up um, uh, Fred Brousseau from uh, Budget and Legislative Analyst uh, Office and also recognize both uh, Mr. Brousseau and Christina Malamut for, for, for their many hours of work on the initial report that they brought before us in January and then also turning around this, this update at our request once we got the new uh, ACS data. So welcome Mr. Brousseau and thank you again for your work. Uh, thank you, Chair Preston. Good morning, <coughs> uh, Supervisors Chan and Mandelman. I'm Fred Brousseau from the Budget and Legislative Analyst Office. I am going to start some slides. So, <coughs> excuse me, as Supervisor Preston mentioned, uh, we've issued a new report, just issued this morning, uh, updating our January 2022 report uh, also to Supervisor Preston on residential vacancies in San Francisco. And um, we present here the difference. Uh, we had presented the 2019 American Community Survey data in our January report, and now we have the same data, but for 2021. And it has been, in fact, a very dramatic change um, I'm going to talk through some of these explanations here for the vacancies. And it's important to remember, as we stated in our January report, uh, the 40,548 vacant units we reported then are not necessarily all uh, available to become occupied immediately. And I'll just say the same thing here. But that's why it's important to um, understand the composition 
of the vacant units and certainly the trends uh, in why it was showing you know, what has changed uh, in terms of vacancies. So on this chart you see what we presented for 2019 when there were 40,548 vacant units, uh, which was about 10% of the total housing stock. Uh, and now you can see what's uh, in place for what was reported for 2021. And the number has gone up from 40,548 to 61,473 units. So it's a big increase, um, about, a, well, 51.6% uh, change or 20,925 um, additional units vacant. But besides the uh, sort of dramatic change in the total numbers, looking at the composition helps tell uh, the story of what's occurred over the last two years, too. And certainly, um, the COVID pandemic is part of the story here, and I think that's played out in some of the numbers. What you see is a big increase in the uh, for rent category. So that went from 7,241 units reported for 2019 to 17,514, uh, a 142% increase. And we know the population decreased uh, during the same time. So. The um, American Community Survey for those two years reports a decline of 66,348 people in San Francisco. So you can take that number and look at the um, increase in units for rent and the two sort of make sense together. Uh, there are fewer people and they left units vacant, but they are um, sitting vacant now for uh, a longer period of time. And other changes um, that were notable to us was the rented not occupied, again, sort of a reflection of the same thing. There's this big shift in the rental market uh, between 2019 and 2021 with more units available, units being rented but not yet occupied. Just in general, a lot of activity in the rental market. Um, the other increases in seasonal, recreational, or occasional use, and in the other vacant. Other vacant is kind of a grab bag of all kinds of explanations. Uh, which includes um, properties where the owners are planning to repair them but haven't started the repairs yet, or they're holding on to them for financial reasons or uh, for personal reasons, or they may have left their home for a while uh, to receive medical care or something for an extended duration. So it's a mix of things, many of which we don't understand. But I think many of us know that there are these sort of mysterious uh, housing units that you see in almost every neighborhood in San Francisco that just sit vacant for long periods of time. They aren't for rent. They don't seem to be being repaired. So those are the type of places that would fit into other vacant. Um, there's different stories for all of them, but um, they add up to quite a few units. You can see here 21,493 in 2021, so a jump from uh, 12,991 in 2019. So it's a pretty big jump. And now comprising 35%, so the largest chunk of all our uh, vacant units is in this other category. The second largest being the rent, and then the third largest being the um, seasonal, recreational, or occasional use. And by the way, that, that category includes kind of a mix of things too, but a lot of that would be second homes uh, that people have here, or third homes, or fourth homes. Um, and other units where the, um, the owner is not there on a regular basis. 
Just to give some context, here's the um, trend lines going back to 2010. I think this helps illustrate how dramatic this change has been over the last two years. Uh, the vacant units during that whole period from 2010 through 2019 never got close to where we are now with the 61,500. Um, even back in 2010, which was the high point until 2019, there were 40,800. We got up to the 40,500 in 2019, and you can see year after year, starting in 2014, there were increases in vacancies. So this trend has been building up over time, but has really shot up over the last two years. Um, this next chart shows the um, vacant units by reason, but going back to 2010, so it's just uh, a little more detail on what that graphic was showing. And here you see the big jump again in for rent, um, because that, and that is all explained by really the last two years, that's when the big increase took place. Sold not occupied had grown substantially through 2019, less so in the last two years. I think those are often uh, units under construction that maybe even get sold before the, um, uh, before the building is complete and the owners haven't moved in yet, or the owners are delayed for whatever reasons, um, there could be different explanations, but for uh, whatever reason, that uh, hasn't grown as quickly in the last two years. Um, so from 2010 to 2021, 84.7% increase in uh, vacant units. This uh, graphic is just another way of kind of breaking out the reasons, but helps illustrate which are uh, account for most of the vacant units and where the big growth has been. So this shows very well with the for rent line that there's been this big jump in the last two years. Similarly with other, uh, big jump in the last two years, but also it's been building up over time. And rented not occupied, which jumped a lot in the last two years, is still a, a smaller portion of the, um, of the units. I wanted to mention also um, going back to our first slide here, uh, for sale and sold, not occupied, those were areas where there were decreases. So we were, there were 1,307 units in 2019 reported as for sale. That went down to 851 in 2021. We did take a look at the um, sales records from multiple uh, listing services for the last couple of years and saw that there wasn't a big change in the numbers other than for the first uh, months during the pandemic. So after that, sales seem to return to kind of the uh, you know, fairly um, stable number. But what it does tell us is um, there are fewer for sale when the census does their survey, which means they're just turning over faster. So I think that there's been high demand and um, houses sitting on the market for shorter periods of time explaining the decrease in what's reported in the survey for 2021. Um, going on, we compared, as we had in our January report, we compared San Francisco's vacant units to other large cities throughout the country. And I think this is pretty interesting, too. Um, we see, and you see the cities that we compared here, and breaking out vacancies by homeowner and uh, rental vacancies to get to our 14.9%. Um, but the rental vacancy is 7.5%, so it is larger than the median of the other cities. 
Uh, no one was as high as that, uh, except for Washington, D.C. with their, uh, excuse me, Washington and Houston with their 8.9%. But we're above the median on the rentals. For homeowners, we are below the median. And I think this is this dynamic I was describing where there's been this uh, you know, fast turnover in homeowner sales, uh, but uh, a big increase in units for rent. And then you can also see on the right two columns vacant units and total units for the other cities. And while uh, there are many more housing units and even vacant units in the larger cities like uh, New York and Houston, our rate is higher than all of those cities. Uh, and here we have the uh, reasons for um, the different cities also from 2021 for the vacancies, same categories as we presented for San Francisco. Here again, we exceed the median for, for rent units, but we are below the median for, uh, excuse me, and we also for rented not occupied, we're below the median for the um, for sale only category and above for seasonal recreational and well above for other vacant. So some unique characteristics to San Francisco's vacant units are shown here. And then um, for the same cities, just again for comparison purposes, where they were in 2019 and where they are uh, in 2021 according to the census data. Again, we are the uh, outlier. We had the biggest growth in vacant units, the 51.6%. Uh, next was New York, but only the Manhattan borough, which is probably more comparable to San Francisco than the entire city of New York, and we have that there as well. But when you look at all boroughs, <clears throat> the change wasn't as great, though they certainly have more housing units than um, we have in San Francisco. But uh, otherwise, besides New York, the rates are 22% and below for the other cities. So that uh, concludes the presentation. We did not uh, break out uh, maps because that wasn't available, unfortunately, to show you know, where the vacant units are most concentrated. Uh, that's not going to be ready until December from the Census Bureau. Um, but we'd be happy to update you with that information um, when that becomes available. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Brousseau, and, and, and thank you for turning this, this at least this initial report, um, even without that additional level of detail around, um, so quickly in your office's ongoing work on, on monitoring this as we, get, as we get newer data. I think when the first set of data came in, we all had mixed feelings. On the one hand, it seemed like the best data, it was the best data to use, but we also knew that the pandemic had had these huge impacts and we weren't, we didn't have the, the 2000 data really uh, and, and any indication of whether of its reliability what we did have so it made made good sense to to anchor the initial findings in the pre-pandemic data which was the best available but um, it's good to have this this update which I think lets us know what some of the impacts have been of the last couple of years um, I, I think so just looking at this, and it's, I don't know what slide number it was, but it's Exhibit 6, your vacancy rates by reason for select cities. So it, it, it seems like the, the three big ones, right, it's the for rent category, the sold not occupied category, and then the 
seasonal recreation or occasional use categories were all were all ones where San Francisco is either the highest or 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 among the highest um, and um, as well as the other vacancy but that one's harder to to define um, they, just maybe looking specifically at the sold not occupied category just really struck by I mean other than Boston which is up at the same as San Francisco in in most other cities it's a tiny fraction of what we have in San Francisco. I don't know if there's any theory on that other than just to observe that reality, but these are, you know, unlike the rented not occupied, which we know is means there's a contract. Someone's been rent, you know, someone has rented the place, but when they're doing the survey, they don't like yet live there because they're going to move in three months later or something like that. I mean, we, we can wrap our brains around that one, but the sold not occupied is different and I think is one that we've often focused on for where it potentially could be speculators or others who are buying property and just holding it. Um, but do, can you elaborate at all and just, we seem to be an outlier there with 1.7% uh, compared to other cities that are at like 0.2%, 0.3%. It's a negligible, almost negligible part of their housing stock where here it's, uh, it's far more significant. Uh, anything additional by way of explanation or observation right. on that? Yeah, well, it's an interesting question, and we've puzzled over that as well. Um, certainly, you know, just an observation, there are um, new housing units that get constructed, and you see these buildings, and they're all sold before uh, the construction is even completed. So that would be one mm -hmm. group here. But uh, it could also be speculators. It could be you know, there are probably lots of different stories for um, why something would be sold and not occupied. But um, unfortunately, this is what the census provides without more detail. So um, we, can, we can put some theories behind it, but, um, but we don't know from what the census reports. Um, another, another category, the for rent one, and, and I'm not sure you can answer this one either, but I'm struck by, you know, we had news out of New York City that you may have seen yesterday on this very issue where in, in New York the publication The City reported um, on a state housing agency memo there that showed that the number of rent stabilization, uh, rent stabilized homes um, reported vacant on an annual uh, apartment uh, registration rose there coincidentally by over 61,000 units in 2021, um, which was double than a year before. And again, this is New York, but it's a, but it, it, advocates there have been alleging that um, that landlords that are holding um, rent-regulated units off the market, fabricating a housing scarcity situation, to, and, and trying to. Um, wait, raise, artificially raise prices and or wait for the market to, to go up before locking in rent-regulated tenants. Um, and that's in the context of some, some uh, push there around deregulation and um, some, mm. you know, but, but I, I, it, it, it got 
I was really alarmed by the number of for rent. And we, uh, on the one hand, we can say, well, we understand a lot of people who are renting may have you know, left the city during the pandemic and, and uh, you know, may be working remotely and there may be explanations for that. But having that many that are sitting vacant when we know there's so many people that need rental housing raises this question that we hear anecdotally around landlords who, who, who may be sort of stubbornly, instead of reflecting a market change and lowering the rent, to bring in tenants may think, hey, this was a $4,000 a month rental unit back in 2019. Uh, I'm waiting for this market to come back to 4,000 bucks or 3,800 or whatever it is. I'm not gonna rent this unit out for $3,000 and then have the rent regulation, rent control kick in. Um, I, I guess my question for, for you is um, in the data, I, I, I didn't see anything that would distinguish between uh, rent-regulated housing and, and non, you know, rent-controlled housing and non-rent-controlled housing. Uh, I don't know if we have that, if that in some ways can be part of a follow-up report, or if we're just, that's data that, that we currently, to the best of your knowledge, just uh, don't have. And, right. Yeah. It, uh, well, uh, Chair Preston, it's not in uh, the census data, which we use for this, but um, we are now collecting information with the new housing registry that the Rent Board has, um, is implementing. So that is a potential source for that kind of information. You know, how long a rent-controlled unit has been vacant, um, what the rent was before and after. I mean, those are the types of variables that uh, could be collected through the registry. And I don't know where the department is right now in their process, uh, but I think it's still in the fledgling state, but um, may be a good time to um, have some discussion with the rent board about uh, what data will be collected. Okay. But from this, we can't see that. What we certainly, it appears that those market forces didn't take place between 2019 and 2021 because um, there was the loss of population. But um, if rents had come down, we wouldn't expect to see such a um, large increase in the um, uh, for rent vacant units. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it really strikes me as a... a a market failure in terms of adjusting, right? Because unless we accept a premise that there are not people who are looking for rental housing in San Francisco, and I don't think anyone is making that argument, um, we would expect to see less of a jump in the vacancies uh, for rent than, than we're seeing here if there were, um, if, if their rents were coming down to reflect uh, perhaps a, a, a decrease in in demand, if that's the case. But so we've, I, I mean, just I, I recognize we don't currently have the data in the census data to say this, the extent to which this is happening in the rent-controlled housing stock. But we've got about a two-thirds of the rental housing stock in the city is rent control, and we see a jump in the for rent vacancies. I, I think it's a 140% jump, right? Correct. Um, so is, is it it's <laughs> kind of, say, I mean, I, I, right, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's, it seems... It seems it reasonable seems to assume it would, that something that must include rent-controlled units. Um, it would be very surprising uh, to me if, if all of those were um, you know, market rate or, or not rent-controlled, built after... Uh, the cutoff date for rent-controlled units. Yeah, 
thinks. I mean, right, if we were talking about a 5 or 10% increase, one might say, oh, well, maybe that's just in mm -hmm. new construction that's not part of rent control or something. But this, to see a 140%, 142% increase, it's got to be across, right? It's a, re or, or a reasonable assumption without further data that that's got to include a, a jump in the, in the rent control vacancies. I think that's a reasonable assumption, yes. Thank you. Um, the just on the comparison again with other cities. So, so you you went through that. Um, just anything. Just maybe to reiterate, you've gone into the detail how we compare in the different categories. But in terms of overall. Um, we appear to be an outlier here um, and and have become more so. We were already high, right? I, I don't know. If you could address where we were in the last report, right, compared with other cities and where we are now, that would be helpful. Oh, okay, yeah. So uh, let's see if I guess it's, this is the only one that... And I don't mean by each category. Right, right, right. I, right. I'm just saying overall because I feel like we had this discussion in, in January and yeah. we were on the higher end, but we had more company, I, I believe. Right, and I'm just gonna now see if I can chart. quickly, I think I have a, uh, not on the slides, but um, uh, yeah, okay, here we go. So our rate in, um, for 2019 was 10%, as we talked about the 40,548 units. Other cities, the median was 9.8%, so we weren't so far out of the pack. Uh, and the other jurisdictions were as high as 14%. That was um, Manhattan. And 10.4% in Philadelphia. 10.3% uh, Suffolk County, which was Boston and area. So we certainly weren't the, um, the outlier then. Um, and now we are. So um, let's see, I think the, yeah. Here's our, so we are definitely the highest, I've got something blocking the slide there. Yeah, so our 14.9% rate compares to 10.1% uh, uh, median for the other cities, and all of them are lower than us, uh, so. Thank you for that context. Uh, Vice Chair Chan. Thank you, um, Chair Preston. Thank you so much, Mr. Russo, for the report. Um, I wanted to have some uh, clarification on the um, other vacant category because it has the uh, largest increase of vacancy. And um, in your report, you, you you already mentioned today during the presentation as a variety of reasons. But in the report, you it also specifically listed corporate housing as the other vacant uh, category. And um, with that, does short-term rental, uh, which category, if any, short-term rental is included? Is it in the other vacant or the seasonal and recreational? Um, Supervisor Chan, short-term rentals could be in the seasonal, uh, recreational, or other occasional use. But corporate housing, you are correct, is in other vacant um, and for whatever reason, that's how the Census Bureau um, classifies it. 
And is there any way to understand out of which in the ca our other vacant category that we would know uh, how much of it is corporate housing? Not with what is readily available. Um, if we could get into the far reaches of the Census Bureau and, uh, data sets, it's in there somewhere, uh, but it's not something they publish uh, right off, you know, readily available data. So does that mean, and I'm kind of, I look forward to seeing the map and identifying locations this December. And so does that mean by the time we do see the map in December, while we will see vacant units, will, will the map also continue to break down into category? But that does not mean while it breaking down to category, it will not tell us which one is corporate housing. That's and, correct. Mm. The categories would be the same as what you see here. So we can show you where other vacant is by neighborhood, um, but not at the level of how much of that is corporate housing. So could there be any effort between your team and um, our short-term rental in the planning department division sort of overlapping, possibly compare short-term rental registry? Actually, I don't think that corporate housing or corporate rental is a registry in San Francisco. Correct. The, uh, it is not classified as short-term rentals, but there is, there was some new legislation um, two or three years ago it, yeah. that now requires uh, registration of what's called intermediate um, length. term rental, occupancy yeah. housing, right. So somewhere in the city, those numbers should be being collected now. And I know that it's not an intent, uh, possibly this, but but I, I'm just curious if there's a possibility to sort of overlapping those, the corporate rental and the short-term rental registry maps with what you're working on in December, just kind of give us a sense to, not that I am, you know, I, I think that we're one of the cities that have been doing a decent job to try to regulate short-term rental and corporate rental, but I think that would be helpful to help us paint the picture overall vacancy as well. Thank you. Great. Yes, we'd be happy to look at, into that. Thank you, Vice Chair Chan. Unless there are other comments or questions, why don't we open this item up for pro public comment? Thank you, Mr. Chair. This message will be repeated in Spanish. Este mensaje se repetirá en español. We are sorry that we're currently unable to provide simultaneous translation. Please feel free to provide your comments in Spanish, and we have a translator available. Lamentamos que corrientemente no tengamos la capacidad de proporcionar traducción simultánea. Si gustaría su comentario en español, sí tenemos servicios de traductor disponibles. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number one? Please line up to your right. Remote public call-in members, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you've been unmuted. Now we'll go to our translator. Miembros del público que desean dar su comentario público acerca de este artículo pueden llamar al 415-655-0001 y entrar en número 2484-338-8697, seguido por el signo de Libra dos veces, luego el signo de asterisco para ponerse en turno. El sistema indicará que usted ha levantado la mano. Por favor, espere a escuchar. You have been unmuted para dar su comentario público. Gracias. Thank you. Buenas tardes. Uh, mi nombre es Brenda Córdoba. Soy líder y presidenta de la mesa directiva con fe en acción. 
y resido en el distrito número 6. No podemos permitir que este problema de las más de 60,000 viviendas vacantes que existen en San Francisco se sigan enriqueciendo con el desplazamiento de nuestras comunidades, que se sigan enriqueciendo con el dolor y la desesperación de nuestros hijos al ver que sus padres no pueden pagar la renta. No podemos permitir que nuestros abuelos con más de 80 años sigan trabajando para poder quedarse en su ciudad. Me pregunto, ¿San Francisco es santuario para que se vengan a enriquecer o es realmente un santuario para proteger y mantener a sus comunidades en sus hogares? Muchas gracias. Un momento para la doctora. Good afternoon. Buenas tardes. Good afternoon. My name is Brenda Cordova, and I am a resident of San Francisco. It breaks my heart to see that so many of us are being pushed away from our area and that our children are seeing how we continue to struggle late in our years, how our grandparents of 80-plus years continue to have to work to be able to pay for the rising cost of rent. Is San Francisco a sanctuary place for us, or is it a sanctuary place for enrichment of the already rich? Thank you. Buenas tardes. Soy pa Mi nombre es Pablo Toro. Soy líder de Fe en Acción y vivo en Distrito. Buenas tardes. Mi nombre es Pablo Toro. Soy líder de Fe en Acción y vivo en el Distrito 11. No necesito ser economista para saber el gran problema que ocasiona tener miles de unidades vacantes en esta ciudad. Que no solo han aumentado su valor, también ha ocasionado los altos costos en renta y ha traído como consecuencia que miles de adultos mayores, más de 75 años, sigan trabajando para poder seguir viviendo en esta ciudad que es nuestro hogar. ¿Por qué más del 70%, 70 de nuestro retiro se va en el pago de la renta? Señores, ante ustedes tienen el problema que estas unidades vacantes han ocasionado, pero también ello una parte de solución. Examinemos nuestras conciencias para hacer lo que es ético, correcto ante este gran problema. Gracias. Good afternoon. My name is Pablo Toro. I am with Fe en Acción, and I belong in District 11. I do not need to be an economist to understand that those 1,000 vacant units have increased in value for some and have also increased the cost of living for others. 
why are we still having to work after 65 plus years of age to be able to pay outrageous amounts of rent? And why is 70% of our retirement going to pay rent alone? I ask that you examine your conscience, you see what the problem is, and do what is right by us. Buenas tardes, soy Daisy Camey, líder de FENACCIÓN y vivo en el Distrito 9. Existen más de 60.000 unidades vacantes en San Francisco que están enriqueciendo a unos cuantos. Porque tristemente la vivienda se ha convertido en un negocio. Pero también existe la oportunidad de tomar la decisión de hacer lo moralmente correcto ante este problema, porque es un problema y una vergüenza tener tantas unidades vacías cuando tenemos en esta ciudad más de 20.000 personas sin hogar. Por favor, no seamos parte de este pecado social y hagamos lo correcto ante este gran problema. Gracias. Hello, my name is Daisy Camay, and I am leader of uh, Fe en Acción, and I belong to District 9. It is obvious that this town has become a place to enrich only a few, and housing has become a mere business. Do what is moral. Why is it so shameful? that over 20,000 plus units are vacant while there are so many people that are homeless. Seek in your conscience and do what is right. Thank you. Good morning, my name is Jim Lichty and um, I live in District 5. I'm glad I voted for Dean Preston because he worked hard on Proposition M. Um, I moved here in 1982 with a man who is now my husband. We moved here for a very specific reason because San Francisco was a special place. And I'm hearing this morning um, that it's special in a very different way than it was. And it's becoming a place where only an elite can afford to live. And I don't want to live in that kind of a city. Proposition M is an opportunity to move us back towards the kind of city that is a city for everyone. That is what San Francisco means to me. And it does it with a lot of resourcefulness and imagination. You can look into the details of the measure yourself. So I think that's what I'd like to say and thank you for your time. Good afternoon, Supervisors. I'm Matt Alexander, and I'm here with my friends from Faith and Action Bay Area, but I'd like to speak um, uh, from my point of view as a member of the Board of Education. We have uh, approximately 2,500 uh, students in our school district who are homeless. That's one in 24 students. Uh, at some schools, it's as high as one in three. Um, meanwhile, 60,000 housing units sit empty, as we've heard 
uh, today. I've heard some try to deny that number and others try to justify it. But to me, what it shows is that what we have in our city is not so much a housing crisis as a moral crisis. We have housing, and we're choosing to allow it to be used as an investment while letting our kids be homeless. I'm all for building more housing, but building takes time, and our kids need a roof over their heads now. Um, I want to thank uh, you on this committee and the whole Board of Supervisors for taking on this issue, having the courage to uh, confront this reality. Um, and I hope that we can all come together and find solutions that, um, so that we can make the reality of this city consistent with our San Francisco values. Thank you. Seeing no more speakers in the chamber, we'll move to our remote call-in line. Okay. Alguien más que gustaría dar comentario antes que cerrar? No, okay, gracias. There are currently two callers with two in the queue. Jaime, please forward the first caller. So, supervisors, my name is Francisco da Costa. Some uh, eight years ago, I made it very clear that we have over 30,000 units vacant eight years ago. Now we know that we have 61,000 homes vacant. 61,000 homes vacant. Not 1,000, not 2,000, but 61,000 homes vacant. We are working on a housing element, which we do every 10 years, and next year we should have the final report. We want to build 82,000 new units. Why would we want to build 82 new units when we have 61,000 homes vacant? We have thousands of more condominiums. What we've done in the last 25 years is focused on building market rate housing and not providing homes for those who make less than $80,000, $80,000. You've heard the elders say that past 65, they have to work. Shame on this city for not caring for our elders, and shame on our supervisors for not having empathy. They always talk and talk, kick the can down the street. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments, Mr. DaCosta. May we please have the next caller? Yes, hi, it's Kristen Evans. Um, I'll wear my small business hat uh, for this comment. Um, I own uh, the Booksmith and uh, the Alembic on Haight Street. And, you know, um, one of the things that um, has really been a challenge um, is retaining staff as the rising cost of uh, living in San Francisco has, um, you know, just continued to climb, um, rent being the predominant major cost of living um, for, our, for our team members. You know, it's been hard to retain folks that have been trained uh, that are moving up through their career to the management level because of the lack of uh, reasonable housing options available to them. 
we know that there are vacancies in our neighborhood. We, we can identify them by the leaves that collect and the mail that collects and the flyers that collect on the doorsteps so we know where they are. Um, I was pleasantly surprised that a fellow small business owner who works in real estate, we often don't agree on uh, policy um, uh, uh, positions, but uh, he had shared with me that he'd also seen through his clients this reluctance to, to rent and to fill buildings. And he thought that, that it was unconscionable and detrimental to small business. I'm glad that we're at this point now where we're really um, getting to tracking and uh, talking about policy solutions. Um, I know that the uh, commercial vacancy tax has led to um, significant improvements along Haight Street in terms of filling up the storefront vacancies. I hope similar policies can be applied to the residential market. Thanks so much. Thank you for your comments. Seeing no other speakers on the line, there are no other speakers, Chair. Thank you. Uh, public comment on this item is now closed. And uh, seeing no other uh, comments or questions from colleagues, I, I, I guess I did want to just close. I, I, first off, I want to thank um, all the folks who took time out of their day to testify, in particular uh, the many folks here from Faith in Action um, who have really focused for quite some time on this issue and on through a lens not just of data, and we heard about the data from the, the BLA, but from the moral lens as a, as a, a group of many folks uh, involved in the faith community here, um, and a lot of faith leaders have really emphasized um, how this is not just a numbers issue, this is a moral issue. It is a moral issue to have people living unhoused on the streets of our city and then have thousands and thousands and thousands, in fact now tens of thousands of units sitting empty. So I, I wanna thank the public commenters, all of them, for, um, for highlighting the human cost of basically the, of, of failing to address uh, this issue in the, in the city. Um, also want to thank the, the BLA, uh, as I did before, for, for sifting through this data, compiling this report, uh, and for the presentation and for the ongoing work. Um, and um, uh, this is, you know, among, among many things, I will just say that there are many policies adopted either by voters or passed by this board that, uh, whose foundation is often in the research uh, and the um, comparative research around what other cities have done and the data research that the BLA uh, provides in a, in a really uh, first-rate way, in an objective way to this board. Um, and uh, I know I speak for colleagues when I convey my gratitude on that, and that is not limited to the vacancy research, but it's certainly a, a good example of, uh, of not just the importance of the data, but of uh, informing our policy solutions for the board and for, and for voters in San Francisco. Um, I think what's clear even before this updated report is that the phenomenon of empty homes has got to be part of our discussion of our city's housing crisis. And I think the fact that in just two years we've seen the vacancy rates jump by over 50% uh, and now accounting for 15% of our overall housing stock, the highest rate 
um, of any large city in the nation. Um, just makes this all the more urgent that we address this um, as a city. And, and, you know, just for some context, the city is currently, and, and all of us on this committee and colleagues on the board are engaged in these discussions being led right now by the planning department around how we're going to update the city's housing element in order to meet the state requirement that we allow for uh, over 82,000 uh, new homes between 2023 and 20. 31. Um, and that's important work, but it also begs the question, how are we making sure that those new homes that we as a city create are not just investment vehicles for the latest global investment firm, but are, also, are places for people to live? Um, and I want to be really clear, this is not an either-or situation. I, I don't know anyone who is serious about addressing the issue of prolonged vacancies who is not also serious uh, about all of the other work to preserve housing, prevent displacement, and create new, new uh, housing, particularly affordable housing in our city. Um, and, you know, as a city, we have to create how new housing and, and create new housing opportunities for uh, particularly for working people right now and just a reminder that of the 82,000 homes that that we are uh, tasked with uh, with creating over the eight-year period 46,000 of those 46,000 of them on, uh, under the revised housing element must be affordable to low and moderate income San Franciscans. And uh, so that's our challenge, but it's also our challenge at the same time to not just sweep this issue of vacancies under the rug, but to make sure that we have the right incentives in place to ensure that people uh, are able to live in those homes that we are creating. Um, and I think, you know, the the point in time discussion and the prior agenda item is just so relevant to inform this discussion. So the, the, the latest data shows 7,754 people living without a home in San Francisco. Of those, 4,397 are unsheltered homeless people. That means they're not living in a shelter, right? They're living on the streets of San Francisco. The data presented previously showed that f are approximately 40,000 empty homes, 40,000. The new data shows there's 61,473 empty homes in San Francisco. Um, to those who point at that number and say we shouldn't be shocked, alarmed, and do something about it because some categories of that 61,000 might not be available to rent, I think they're missing the point. Nobody is claiming that 61,473 homes can be moved into tomorrow. Of course there are categories. There are, there are homes that are in disrepair and nobody can live there right now. There are homes that have been purchased and someone is scheduled to move or been rented or purchased and someone is scheduled to move in there, right? There are different categories within that and I think the BLA report has been very upfront uh, as have all the advocates who have been talking about the need to address empty homes in San Francisco. Um, it doesn't change the fact that there are 
61,473 is our best estimate of how many empty homes there are in San Francisco and that there are tens of thousands of those uh, that, that could be occupied but are sitting vacant. So um, I'm particularly alarmed by the increase in the for rent and particularly concerned as we are seeing in New York City that we have a phenomenon developing here where uh, some landlords are uh, stubbornly clinging to their idea from the past and pre-pandemic of what their units are worth and what rents they're entitled to uh, instead of lowering the rents uh, to move people in. I hope we can change that um, and uh, do everything possible as a city to incentivize uh, those landlords to rent out these units as well as to incentivize the real estate speculators that are holding uh, condos and, and other uh, newly constructed units uh, empty awaiting for an upswing in the market so they can make more reselling them. That kind of speculation is part of our market, uh, but we can also change the calculation uh, by, by having a cost in the city uh, to holding empty units vacant for a prolonged period of time. Um, so I, I think that this is an area that desperately calls out for a policy intervention. We've talked in the previous reports that, that uh, taxing vacancy is the most powerful tool that the city has. Uh, it's also only part of the equation, and we want to be clear, as Mr. Brousseau mentioned, the rent board is increasingly now collecting data um, with the rent registry that will be useful uh, to tracking uh, vacancies and getting, shedding more light on the scope of the problem in our city, uh, and we will need to continue doing more work uh, to, to uh, really get a handle on, on this issue, but I, I hope our hearing today and the ongoing discussion elevates this because I can't think of any other situation in our city where we're talking about thousands upon thousands upon thousands of units where there's so little discussion of that fact. We will watch dozens and dozens of media articles about you know whether or the Board of Supervisors grants a CEQA appeal on one parking lot and a few hundred units, right? And, and regardless of what's one's view of those kind of decisions, they are so tiny, tiny compared to this issue of prolonged residential vacancies in San Francisco, the 60,000 vacant units in our city, and the need to do something about that. So I will leave it there um, and um, move to continue this item to uh, the call of the chair. Thank you. On the motion to continue the item to the call of the chair, Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you, Madam Clerk. The motion passes, uh, and thanks again to everyone uh, who came and spoke uh, on this item. Madam Clerk, please call uh, regular agenda item number three. Item number three is a resolution retroactively approving a Memorandum of Understanding, MOU, with the cities of Oakland and San Jose and the counties of Alameda, Contra Costa, Marin, Monterey, San Mateo, Santa Clara, and Sonoma that provides governance structures and procedures for application, allocation, and distribution of Federal Urban Area Securities Initiative, UASI, grant funds to the Bay Area Urban Area as well as for the federal grant funds of the Bay Area Urban Area as permitted under the MOU, 
and continue San Francisco as the primary grantee and fiscal agent for the UASI grant funds to the Bay Area urban area, as well as for other federal grant funds to the Bay Area urban area as permitted under the MOU for the period from December 1, 2021 through November 30, 2025. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001 and enter meeting ID 2484-338-8697, then pound and pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you, Madam Clerk. This item is sponsored uh, by the Mayor's Office. I, we have uh, representatives from Department of Emergency Management here, I believe, appearing uh, virtually. Um, and I want to turn it over to them for any uh, remarks at this time. I believe we have Molly Geeson Fields and, uh, Scott, and or Scott Kaplan available. So welcome, and uh, the floor is yours. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Molly Geeson Fields, and I am the regional grants manager here at the Bay Area UASI, which, as you just said, is um, under the Department of Emergency Management. Um, the U.S. Department of um, Sorry, <laughs> there's a um, UASI uh, grant that is released each year by the Department of Homeland Security under their Homeland Security Grant Program. And um, the DHS IDs high threat, high density, um, urban areas that are um, potentially impacted by terrorism. Um, as part of that program, there's a Bay Area urban area that's been established that um, covers the three main cities in the Bay Area, Oakland, San Jose, and San Francisco, plus 12 county jurisdictions. Um, San Francisco is the primary grantee and the fiscal agent for these grants. So what is in front of you today, the resolution and the related MOU um, will formalize our government structure and procedures for how we work together on the UASV grants. Um, and um, the MOU is signed every four years the last one expired November 30th, 2021, and, and this one starts December 1st, 2021, retroactively through November 30th, 2025. Um, our approval authority, which is our body of oversight, has approved this MOU last November. Um, due to some staffing transitions, um, unfortunately, this MOU fell through the cracks on our end, and I apologize for this oversight. Um, if anybody has any questions about the details of um, the UASI program, I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Um, I can you just address on the on the retroactivity and timing issues, just a any practical impacts of um, this being being brought to us and and uh, and or approved by the board at this time, like is this all in in effect despite the fact that it it hasn't um, come before the board? Um, 
If you could just, yeah, clarify any practical impacts of the timing here. Right, so we've been working with our jurisdiction partners for um, a, quite a while now, and um, they are have been working in good faith. Many of them have already signed um, their own MOUs, um, but no, there's not been, people are moving forward um, with the grants and taking action as planned. Okay, thank you. And yeah, any, obviously, as with any retroactive items, you know, at, when this lands, assuming we, we forward it, when this lands before the full board, I know colleagues will have always have questions around, particularly something that was, that was uh, entered into for a period starting back in December 2021. We're almost a year, year later. So and any, you know, additional details appreciate uh, the information you've already provided to the committee, but would be helpful uh, in providing that to the to the full board before a vote. But I don't want to get out of ourselves. So, uh, colleagues, unless there are questions uh, or comments, why don't we go ahead and open this item up for public comment? Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number three? Please line up to your right. Remote public comment members, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. Seeing no persons in the chamber, we'll move to our remote call-in line. There are two callers with one in the queue. Please forward the first caller. So supervisors, first and foremost, this presentation was a convoluted presentation. The person giving the presentation does not fully understand security measures that are so very critical to this area. And the reason being, we do not have in our city a commander, the status of a commander as they have with FEMA and some other federal agencies. We have these lackeys, so-called safety officers, trying to say something but they say nothing. So we, we must not take these grants and these issues uh, lightly, not in today's world. And we have to revamp our Office of Emergency Services that failed us, failed us miserably initially during COVID and recently there were some issues, not directly, but indirectly, when they were having exercises with a helicopter and so on and so forth. So we need a commander in San Francisco to address security initiatives linked with terrorism and so on and so forth. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments. May we please have the next caller? There are no other speakers to this item, Chair. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. And um, I would like to move to send this item to the full board with recommendation. Please call the roll. On the motion to send this item to the board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman. 
Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Um, and now, Madam Clerk, please call uh, regular agenda items 4 through 18 for the closed session. Items number 4 through 18 are various settlements and unclaimed litigation ranging from civil civil situations as well as unpaid taxes. Thank you. Let's go ahead and open up uh, for public comment the closed session items. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment to these items should call 415-655-0001 and enter meeting ID 2484-338-8697, then pound and pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. The system will prompt indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item four through 18, please line up to your right. For those already on the line, please continue to hold until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. Seeing no one in the chamber, we'll go to the public call-in line. There are currently zero listeners and zero in the queue. Thank you. Public comment on the closed session items uh, is now closed, uh, and uh, I'd like to move to convene in closed session. Madam Clerk, please call the roll. On the motion to convene in closed session, Vice Chair Chan. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you. We'll now convene in closed session. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
We're back in open session. Thank you. Uh, thanks uh, for your patience while we're away. And um, Madam Clerk, please report on the closed session deliberations. During closed session, the committee recommended items 4 through 10 to the full board, as well as items 12 through 18. And to continue item number 11 to the November 3rd meeting. Thank you. And on the uh, motion to uh, not disclose closed session discussions, please call the roll. On that motion, Supervisor Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. Supervisor Mandelman? Aye. Mandelman, aye. Supervisor Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you. Motion passes. Uh, any further uh, business before the committee? I just wanted to clarify the long titles for the litigation agenda. It is a various uh, ordinances and resolutions authorizing settlement of lawsuit and unlitigated claim against the city and county of San Francisco. And that concludes the agendas for today. Thank you. We are adjourned for both of our meetings. Thanks. Thank you.